Constructed Criticism is brought to you by our three amazing sponsors, Grey Viking Games, Oasis Games, and PureMDGO.com. You can find them directly in the links in the show notes and use the codes associated with each sponsor. We appreciate each of them and definitely think that you should check them out for all your Magic the Gathering needs. Now sit back and enjoy this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 381st episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your ready-for-Halloween host, Mason, joined by my spooky co-host, Abe, and my trick-or-treating co-host, Spencer. How are you guys doing this week? Can I be trick-or-treating instead? I'm really not that spooky. Yeah, well, I also am definitely not trick-or-treating. Uh, I have a, I have two children. Like they will, one of them can't even eat candy. Like I will get free candy. I don't have to trick or treat. Yeah, but that's why you're gonna trick or treat with your child. Make sure oh, they're that's safe. That's factual. That is true. I yeah. Have, I I have a legal obligation to do that. He can't just run the streets. All right. Yeah. I, guess I'm, well, I guess I'm spooky. Do you want to be like festive? But festive is not so Halloween. You know, that's the problem, Abe. I'm really a Halloween Grinch. It's my mom's birthday on Halloween, so that's always what I've celebrated it as. So. Oh, nice. So what are you going to do for your mother this Halloween? You're going to win the Invitational? Uh, win the Invitational! <laughs> Not be there! Play, 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 play. I was so excited when they announced the Invitational. And I was like, going to qualify. And then I saw the date. And I was like, I think I texted Mason before I even talked to my wife. I was like, well, this is not happening. <laughs> yeah. You have no shot of making it to the Invitational. Not happening. Those kids aren't going to allow that. But hey, you know what? We are going to allow us to have a great episode of Constructive Criticism this week. We're going to be talking about applied testing, how to really kind of focus our time and use our testing to the best of our ability, especially when we maybe don't have as much time as we would love to have. But first, we do need to do always improving. That is the point of the show. We want to be always trying to get better at something. And I will start things off this week. My always improving moment over the last couple of weeks has been one of, one of the things we're trying to work on is figuring out play patterns. Uh, specifically in standard, I've been trying to kind of get a feel for like when I need to be playing around specifically cards like divide by zero versus fading hope versus heated debate. Uh, I've been playing a lot of green. And if you play a lot of magic arena or you play against your buddy, Abe here testing the invitational, you're going to run into a lot of blue red decks and having to figure out how, how best to play around, you know, uh, a one mana unsummon a three mana conditional, like removal spell slash counter spell in a uncounterable like spot removal spell that kills almost your entire deck uh, is a pretty challenging thing. And you have to kind of start figuring out when you need to place your bets, especially when all things are even and think about stuff. And it has been a real challenge to kind of figure out like, okay, when am I supposed to be betting all in on divide by zero? And when am I supposed to be making it really like hard for Abe to have divide by zero here? Right. And so a lot of figuring out like if he does or he doesn't. So like a great example of this might be if I have like two Ranger classes going, I might want to be putting a bunch of my tokens on, sorry, a bunch of my plus one, plus one counters on the token, because if Abe has to divide by zero, that's going to be a real hassle for me, because it won't actually hit the token. And so it's going to want to hit something like maybe the old growth troll, and I can make him do that sort of thing. Where if I have Fading Hope, I maybe want to like spread the counters out across multiple bodies, since something's going to get unsummoned, preferably on like weaker ones. And then with like Heated Debate, it's like, okay, can I like grow something smaller that's maybe a 3-3 three, three up into a 5-5? Five, five, so that that gets debated, and maybe my cherry gets to live because he can't afford to take that damage. And just things of that nature, uh, and trying to get used to really the play patterns and try and ultimately dictate the way my opponent plays 
and to play how they've sorry it's dictating how they play in some sense but it's also me dictating the play uh in other cases so a lot of that sort of thing uh has been what i've been working on the last couple weeks so i'm kind of curious like is, is it just understanding play patterns of those individual interactions or is it more play patterns of the format as a whole well, that is the format. So I <laughs> green versus you know, and now I've got the I've got the green stuff down as well. But uh, no, but there is some of that. But that's kind of more of the the good example. I think that that example, while it is a little hard if you haven't played the matchup from both sides or one of the sides, I should say, uh, to kind of really get a good grasp on what I'm saying. It is about like practicing, thinking about like, okay, what does my opponent have? What can I do to dictate their plays and get them to play in a way? That's going to be best for me to resolve my plan of like, okay, I want to get this frog moth down and like eat the graveyard, you know, or something along those lines. So um, it, guys, it really has to do with my matchup. But. Are you guys actually feeling like this is a three deck format? It's just basically mono white, mono green, and 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 whatever blue red variant people are playing. Uh, I I feel that way essentially. I I know there are like blue black and Esper sure, leader sure. decks. The, the, the blue black, the blue black control deck. It definitely exists. Yeah. And I, I don't know. It's one of those things where maybe this is maybe a conversation. Like next week, we're going to be doing a big breakdown of standard and we'll see how things play out. But I, I do wonder how much that's player skill and how much of that, of my impression, the deck is also like maybe my opponents are grabbing this deck list and they're not using their resources as effectively as they need to be. But uh, I have found that basically the format is blue, red, and green are the only decks that are good. And there's white, which you can play, and it's fine, but it's not as good as blue, red, and green. And you should basically only play it when people forget white exists, and then they red players start cutting their hate for it. So, interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's kind of my. So it'd be like one A, one B, and then like you know two being mono white. But yeah, I think I'm a little more open to there being more playable decks, but I do think that like yeah, like in 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 the best of things, it's just like the blue red, uh, whatever builds of those that maybe like splash, uh, splash black some of them do, or even just the straight Grixis decks. I think are in the conversation, depending on how much white shows up. And then it's I think those are just blue red decks, though. Like in my head, like that's part of that conversation. Like it's whichever like Leer or Goldspan Dragon or Epiphany deck you yeah, want to play, it's, it's totally and you can like splash a little. I agree with me. Yeah, there's there's two pillars of the format. I think. Oh man, I'm like so far off from you guys that, have, but you guys have probably played more standard the last two weeks than I have. So, yeah, I just think the pillars are yeah. faceless haven and arms with me, and that's like oh, everything else under the sun that's is fair. is is stretched to to try to make those cards as good as possible. Cool. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Abe, what was your always bring moment this week? Uh, so it's uh kind of in line with yours, but. Uh, just in the sense that we've been playing so much and testing so much for the Invitational together. Um, but I haven't really been focusing on the micro aspect of how the game's been playing out uh, as much as I've been trying to ensure that I am bringing decks for the Invitational that are focused on, like, moving forward a week. You know, like, the Mana Traders was over the weekend. There's a ton of standard events and modern events every weekend on Magic Online. A bunch of data to look at. Uh, and really, I think that's something that I did, um, and I've had a lot of success doing, is playing decks that I know are good, just net decking a bit, maybe making some small alterations, but not really thinking too hard about, um, like, the micro of the way my deck is constructed. Um, 
to make sure that, you know, I didn't make too many mistakes in the way my deck was built. But for the Invitational, uh, you know, we've tried a lot of off-the-wall ideas in Hammer. We've tried um, some... I've been trying a lot of different things between these various builds of the Epiphany decks um, to try to understand what is really going on there and what's going to be the best one for the metagame I expect this weekend. And so... Uh, yeah, that, that's really what I've been working on, is trying to focus on building decks and bringing decks for this weekend that are looking at the picture in front of me and not the snapshot from last week. Uh, and hopefully that pays off. Good. Speaking of that money pile in modern, we have that conversation later. How many people can afford money pile? Spencer, how are, what was your always brief moment this week? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I wasn't on the show last week. Uh, so uh for personal reasons but so i had my grandfather pass away and then uh <laughs> actually <laughs> my grandfather passed away while i recorded the last podcast i was on <laughs> so that was awkward uh and then you know i also just happened to get a sinus induction so i thought you know what i don't need an always improving moment everybody will understand but nah that's not me i actually have uh listened to a bunch of magic podcasts and knowing kind of what i knew about Abe and mason I decided to really start focusing on historic a little bit because I knew that these guys would be playing modern and standard. And um, funnily enough, I don't know that my always improving moment is historic specific, but I would like to use a historic example. Um, So pretty often in in different uh, games that I've played, whether it be Smash Bros or Magic or uh, even like TFT to like when I was trying to learn that game, uh, you know, uh, I was trying to learn Mass Effect 3 multiplayer. I was watching videos on that. There's like tons of different metagame considerations that you have to make in, in different gaming aspects. And a pretty common thread is people just give up on matchups really easily, in no matter what game you're playing. Uh, and there, there comes a top point where I think that we often need to admit that this matchup, this thing that we're doing, will probably never be winnable. But if I decide to do this thing, I need to make it manageable. And can I make it manageable without sacrificing too much? And so this week, uh, I streamed uh, to kind of cheer myself up. I streamed inside of the Easy Game Media Discord. Um, and uh, I was playing, I played a bunch of Mono White and Standard. And then I played um, some Gruul Shamans because I believe that had a really good Jun matchup, which it does, by the way. If you really do believe that Jund is the only good deck in Historic, you should just play Gruul Shamans. You will dunk literally all over it. They do not play enough disruption between Thossies and Fiddle Push to disrupt you. However, there is a uh, deck that got a lot uh, from the new cards, which is the five-color Niv deck that now plays the two-mana, I think it's Territorial Kavu. Uh, Yep, you're right. And... uh, also, because it's playing that, gets to play uh, Deafening Clarion. And holy crap, the first time that I played against that combination of cards in the main deck of this deck, I was like, I don't know how my deck beats this. Uh, and I was pretty ready to give up on the matchup, but I thought about it a lot. And I thought about the other decks that like are in, are in Historic, whether it's kind of those Blue White Teferi decks, whether it's the... Like, you know, what what is what is the format? What are the pressures of the format? And uh, something that was technology that a lot of players early on with the Shaman deck were playing uh, that I had cut down on was actually the interaction 
between uh between goblin room blaster in your deck and let me tell you that once i understood what i was trying to do to my opponent um bring for example uh, i had a combust in my deck uh, a lot more of the combust in my sideboard a lot more of them and actually burning hands in combination with goblin room blaster gives you time to literally just not i mean you have to draw those cards but it does swing that matchup when you draw them and I think that anybody who saw a 5-5 on turn two against them with the deck with this deck and followed by a deafening clear on would think there's no redeemable hope I can't possibly win. But luckily, because of the power level and the synergy of this deck, like you're able to construct a game plan that followed up by Collected Company will win you games against a deck that you should not be able to beat. And so my always improving moment really comes down to not giving up on something. And as weird as this sounds, this actually is something that I learned from Smash Brothers, because I had become pretty lazy in Magic and giving up on match matchups. Um, but I, uh, the the character that I made in Smash Brothers is Wolf, who is kind of like the Jund of Smash Brothers, where like nothing is worse than like forty percent. Um, and yeah, it was it was really cool to like learn that making something manageable can sometimes be more important than making something winning. Sometimes you have to be okay with manageable. Yeah, it also shows, like, I think one of the things that Smash Brothers, and more so Melee than Ultimate, because Ultimate gets patches, but Melee's really showed me, is that, like, things might look insurmountable, and then it'd be really hard. There's a lot you can do to eke out a little bit of percentages. There's a lot that can happen there. While that game is obviously, like, 100% player skill, there's no real variance in that game. There is in Magic, and that's actually in your favor. Right. You know, like, exactly. like, you know, the, when things go poorly in your bad matchup, it sucks, you're going to lose, but, you know, you're already kind of not a favorite day, you can do the best you can, whatever, try and get out of it, but if they have bad luck as well, and you're drawing a little hotter, you can actually do something, and trying to find those extra percentage points might be the difference in their bad draw being actually a losing draw versus a bad one. Yeah. And I, so I, I think that's really important. I completely agree. If there's anything that Smash did teach me, coming back to Magic, as I spent most of my time, my Magic break playing Smash, it is it is 100% that like, dude, I I was so hard on myself in like spots where, you know, people thought, I mean, I don't want to get into specifics of Smash, but like, the the, the fact that the meta game of Super Smash Brothers Melee still evolves tells you that Magic players have gotten super lazy, like, just we we can do so much more to like innovate and change in this game that we play. Maybe. I think it's really, uh, really funny you brought up an example of like this matchup just feels unwinnable because I think that most of my invitational testing for modern has just been me playing Hammer Time against the worst matchups possible, getting dumpstered and just looking for any edge anywhere, right? and that's and and that's like that's so much of the process is that you know you can't always like I have to, I have to keep reminding myself like before I started doing this when I would play leagues of Hammer I was complaining that I was winning too much. Because my deck is just that good. And when you play it well, it's really rewarding. But, like, you you play against your worst matchup a bunch of times. You're just trying to find a plan that works enough of the time that it gets to a point where it's manageable. You know, that you feel like it's winnable. Yeah. And, I, think, uh, I think I tweeted out that with that deck that I was, like, 15-2 and two or something. And since then, I'm, like, I'm like 32-4 and four with, with this Gruel deck. And a lot of those wins have... The only time I've actually lost since developing that sideboard plan to this deck is actually on a mulligan to five in game three. Like, 
it really does work. And you, if you put in the effort, you know, I don't think it's favorable still. Like, I think I'm still playing on ladder and like, you know, those results are, are what they are, but I at least have a plan. And we, we preach that a lot on this show and, and what, you know, what Abe just said, right? Like, this is a bad matchup for Hammer, but like, what can I do? Like, if, I, if I'm going to make this decision, I need to be aware of when am I actually giving up a matchup? And when, when, when can I actually bring it to a reasonable spot? That's true. Yeah. What I also learned is that Abe quickly forgot the first couple weeks of testing where Mason just died all the time playing his hammer. <laughs> just like that was part of the leagues, Mason. That was part uh, of the leagues. Yeah, no doubt. I, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm not wiping my tears out. Not me. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. And we're going to talk quickly about the Patreon. So we have worked and talked out and figured out some new stuff when it comes to the Patreon. Um, and we basically just need to double check some number stuff. But I expect that to kind of be changing and adding some new content, some new things there. But if you didn't know, patreon.com slash ccmtg. Really quickly, uh, <laughs> before before we move on from this, uh, I just want to give a cut out to Cody. Shout out to Cody. A, a Cody to Cody. I want to give a shout out to Cody, our newest patron. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, it, it means the world to us when we get those emails. And honestly, like, I'm pretty excited. We, we kind of talked about it before the show this week. And, you know, there, there's been a lot of – there's been – I mean – I, I, I've said it on Twitter, I'll just say it on the show. I think Mason had a really rough job taking over the show. Like, I handed him the show, and then I think, like, literally two or three weeks later, the country shut down. And... It's know, all right. <laughs> like, like, uh, but I, I think that we're all ready for, like, to get back into magic. You know, we've we got paper events starting up again, and we think it's, like, the perfect time for us to... Okay, here here's here's what we're going to be offering, uh, and, and gather that feedback, and... and you know, offer stuff, but you know, to people like Cody, who who are who's our newest patron, we just want to say thank you. Like, thank you for supporting us during the hard times, and also to those who who left because they lost jobs and stuff. Like, I hope nobody feels any pressure that they need to come back. Like, we, we just appreciate honestly. Like, every time you listen to this episode, like that that one listen means so much. So never when we talk about that Patreon, like you have to do it. We just we just appreciate you listening. Anyways, I don't even know who those patrons are. Forget them. Let's move on to the main topic today, the training grounds. Let's talk about applied testing. <laughs> no, but uh, this week we're talking about applied testing. And this is something I kind of had mentioned on the show maybe two or three weeks ago at this point. We talked about wanting to do an episode. And we finally have hit the point where it's time to do that episode. And so let's kind of get into what, what I mean by applied testing. And applied testing can mean kind of a lot to a lot of different people. And probably it's just kind of my way of saying focus testing in a way. But basically kind of the goal is we want to focus and do everything we can to maximize our time when testing and when looking and when watching and when talking about magic cards and talking about formats. So uh, a good example of this, and we're going to go over some of the things through this course of the show, is like if you're play testing in paper with a friend and let's say you really want to test, I don't know, uh, having Bitter Blossom against Blue White just put the bitter blossom in your opening hand just like we don't need to shuffle and play 10 games before we draw the bitter blossom just put the bitter blossom in your hand and draw six new cards we'll and just make sure you have two lands like we'll figure it out we just need to see if this card actually does what it does and a lot of other things along those sort of lines as well but that is really what we're talking about today a lot of ways for us to maximize our time 
when it comes to testing and improving. And hopefully this will help you and your friends also do this as well with, you know, between the SDGs Online, the Moto Challenges, and, you know, we have at GP Vegas coming up uh, here in a couple of weeks. Spencer, you know, when we're talking about this, one of the things that really comes to mind is focus. Because, you know, it is kind of like a variant of focus testing. What is something that you really think about when it comes to focusing and improving on these sort of areas? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. I, it, it's funny because if you had asked me about applied testing like six years ago, I would definitely have a different answer than four years ago. And the reason for that is actually my job change. Um, so for those who don't know, I, I work in software. I'm a, a product manager in software. And, you know, one of the big shifts from project management to product management in software is understanding the problem to be solved. And this is something that I have really benefited from, in all honesty, uh, as my, my life changed and my career changed at the same time, and being able to apply that to magic. And understanding what problem you're trying to solve going into a playtesting session was really helpful for Team CCMTG uh, back in the, the days with Michael and Danny and Matt and me and, and Casey. Because when we, when we, you know, when we had three hours, like we knew what we were trying to accomplish in those three hours. And I think anytime you go into a testing session like this, right, where it's not just jam games, talk about them afterwards. It's not just play a league, talk about it afterwards, where it's like, like what, what, what is the problem that the format is presenting, that the matchup is presenting and focusing in on that specific problem, I, th I think is a pretty huge deal. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the main things about this. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as well. But really talking about targeting in and siloing and kind of putting all our attention in one area is kind of be a, a reoccurring theme when it comes to this. What are kind of your thoughts about this, Abe, before you know, we kind of really delve into the, the meat of all this? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, when I think of like applied testing and how it differs from like more unfocused testing, if you were to put it into those two categories, um, you know, your unfocused testing is when you, you know, you take time to maybe you're trying to pick a deck you want to play and you want to know like what the format is like. You want to play some leagues against random decks on Moto. You want to get your friend and proxy up a gauntlet of decks and start jamming them against each other to understand what the decks do and what they're like. It's very different than applied testing where you kind of know that stuff already. And now you're really getting down to the smaller level, the nitty gritty about the cards you're choosing to play in your decks, what you're boarding in, you know. Really, uh, really putting everything under a microscope is like the most important part of applied testing, and even just adding that to your process. Because I know so many people who get really good and spend a lot of their time just doing this unfocused testing. But then, you know, when when you're working on getting from there to you know the next step above, adding some of that more applied thinking and testing is is huge to your game. Yeah, I, I agree. I think kind of the, the thing to really talk about before we delve deeper into this topic is thinking about like, when are we supposed to be doing this versus what Abe just talked about there, like more unfocused, more like exploratory. And I think you actually gave kind of the good answer. Once we kind of know what we're wanting to be doing, we're kind of what the sort of maybe a couple of things, for example, like maybe we want to play hammer or blue red as an example in modern doing apply testing there matters much more than like when we're doing uh, normal testing or kind of just playing whatever it's a lot more in the early stages of trying to figure out where we want to be. Do y'all think that's like kind of a fair analysis of it? Oh, you literally just hit the hammer. Oh, wait, the nail on the head with hammer time. Because like <laughs> straight up, this this is actually what I am currently being charged with at work. 
is helping my my new team at the new, the new company in that understanding problem discovery versus solution validation and solution discovery. You can't actually solve a problem until you can clearly articulate what the problem is that you're trying to solve. And the same thing is true in Magic. So like if I'm going into a format, I don't know what deck I'm trying to play. I need to be able to articulate what are the questions, uh, the problems that the format is presenting to me so that I can then suss out which solutions I want to try out and then validate those solutions against those problems and what you just said highlights that exactly. And like when I when I talk about how much this helped me from going to like applying this from work to magic, I mean it 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 I mean it it's unreal because you you can't you can't possibly go out the the point of unfocused testing as Abe called it is to identify the problems that you're trying to attack, right? Like that that's the whole point of it. If you are only doing that and only asking the question of what problems as the format presenting you're never getting to the solution uh and you're never getting to i to validate your solution against those questions yeah i think this is so important how this is a you know a kind of a question to listeners but also to us here how many times have you talked to someone and you've been kind of like yeah i think i want to play this cyborg card like dress down and then they go, well, what's like, what's the matchup for? Because like, they're trying to suss out what you've learned in your unfocused time so they can kind of get up to speed. We can really nail down it and figure out what we're going on. That's kind of what we're talking about here. And that's sort of a great example of how to get into this. So this, you... is, this is how I feel about every time I see a disenchant in somebody's sideboard as a one of. Mm -hmm. And I like ask them, like, what's this disenchant for? And if they don't have a good answer, I'm like, you do not know what problem you were trying to solve with that disenchant, dude. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, you, your cards need to have a purpose. You know, like, when you look at people's decks who are built sort of weirdly, and, you know, uh, we can kind of talk about this a little bit before the show, but, like, Sam Black is a great example of, like, has these decks are constructed in very kind of odd, off-the-wall ways, but if you talk to Sam, Sam has a reason and a purpose and a goal for all of the cards. And is that always 100% optimal, right? No, but he has plans that he's trying to solve problems with them and this is what's going to be the end result of what we're talking about today with applied testing we're going to get you to that place where hopefully you're trying to figure out these problems and will you always find the perfect solution no but given enough time enough repeat effort you will get it there more often than not and you'll learn stuff along the way and it'll get easier and better and you get to focus on other more fun stuff at times uh let's talk about testing though for individual matchups and I, I think kind of a good way to look at this is maybe kind of look through the lens of something like standard, since standard's probably the most popular format here and it's the best example of. And what comes to my head is I was playing against Abe and we're trying to test this blue-red Lear deck against like kind of the field and kind of against green and see what it's like. And this is right at the beginning of Lear and the main deck really starting to take off as an archetype. And basically what happened is, is I didn't have a plan for this card. And Abe was just like, throw cards at you and then play a Leer and then I re-throw those cards at you and you die. And I was like, wow, I this cannot actually be like a Leer. And what happened is I then had to think about, you know, like, well, how am I going to solve this problem? Like, how do I beat Leer? And then we got to the answer, Frogmoth, Garbunta, the big toad himself. And it's like, okay, now let's do that. And that kind of started a new process of it. Right? How do we want to play this card? How do we want to, we want to board this card in? And we got to go there a little bit more. 
Abe, what do you think about that since you were there for that whole process as well? Yeah, I think that's a really good example of like a great, uh, like, like if you were to break down that example into the steps, right? We played a matchup where we just wanted to focus, you know, like how is this matchup? Does, for me, it was I'm focusing on, is Lear the plan that is able to help me beat both Mono Green and Mono Red? A non-creature five drop that lets me still play a bunch of cheap spells to handle like Redains and stuff without, you know, having to commit to these Wraths that get really punished by the Mono White things. And the answer was, yes, it is good enough. So then you took it a step further and you're like, okay, now that I know that this is a problem for me and people are going to start doing this, how do I attack that? And then, you know, you, we go to the drawing board. You go, what are the cards that really are good against this pattern? In this case, Frog Humith, when you're already ahead on board or you're forcing me to tap out a lot to answer the board with my Leer or I can't afford to, like, use my mana to protect my Leer uh, from, like, a fight spell and deal with this 5-5, five five, it'll just come down and make it to my graveyard is not juicy for a top deck Leer or the Leer that I have in play, maybe enforcing a block at times in, in our testing. And so... You know, that's about finding the problem that you're facing, like having having an idea in your head of what you want to learn, what it is you want to get out of it, and then working through the steps, playing the games to understand if the solution actually works, and then putting it into practice and, and working it into your deck list, right? Um, so, so I think that's a perfect example. Yeah. Spencer, you were going to say something there, but I was throwing it to Abe about... No, I, I, I just really loved the example, and I, I was going to say exactly what Abe just said, which is just that, like, you did a really good job of problem identific like problem identification, and it, it's so funny, too, because, like, I also think that, you know, if, if we're using the example for my work, you guys also did a really good job of uh, problem validation, where you guys talked about the matchup, right? So, like, you've identified, you've both identified where you're at in the matchup, you then talk about it. You identify one person gets to talk about like their side of the match, the other person gets to talk about theirs, and you're saying, okay, well, are you experiencing this problem that I think I'm presenting to you, or am I, or am I mistaken? And then you you suss that out, right? And once you've both become in alignment on that problem, you then both went to, okay, well, how do I solve it from my side? How do I solve it from my side, right? And you start to come to a consensus on what the matchup is about. And then identifying who's favored once you both know that information, who's favored when only one of you knows that information. And like, I mean, that's, that's huge, right? Like that's, you go from, you just went from level zero matchup play to like level four in a very short amount of time. And that's the point of the supply testing, right? That's the whole, it's to shortcut so much of this that I'm now understanding a matchup on a whole nother level that I'm identifying the key parts of it that other people aren't identifying because they're always doing that unfocused testing that Abe is talking about and just focusing on their win percentage. Yep. And that's such a thing too. It kind of, we'll get into this more sideboard cards in a little bit, but this also happens a bunch where they don't think about what the opponent's sideboarding. You don't talk about that and kind of suss through what you're supposed to be boarding. I think talking about individual cards is super important as well. And this kind of goes hand in hand with sideboarding. And I think it's probably best to keep up with the, the green versus blue red standard example where kind of the default reaction when you see like the all of the blue red decks is as the green players like hey i should cut all of my blizzard brawls all the blizzard brawls are really really bad they're gonna only have birds or a dragon maybe a leer uh maybe they'll have eggs but like i i need to have like pressure i need to put them down this sort of card gets right in my hand 
And what happens is, as you play the matchup more and you kind of focus in and you start thinking about how the games are being won, it's actually won a lot by the blue-red deck kind of juking you in a sense, even though you know it, and leaning on these creatures to kind of close the distance. We even saw Brad Nelson do this in the Mana Trader series this past weekend by boarding out his epiphanies against Mono Green as blue-red and kind of leaning on, hey, I'm going to use let Egg and Leer to take over the game. And once I've taken over the game, I, I don't need something like Epiphany, whatever. Like, my, my spells win the game. We saw that in Worlds, too, right? Even in the finals, mm-hmm. the Dragon Slayer boards out their Epiphany against the against the the Gruul the the player, deck. right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, it, it's so hard to... I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. Like, you have to... You have to get to level one before you can get to level two or level three, but you you do need to identify those things to play at the top level. Yeah, and it's one of those things too where you, you need to kind of walk the line, right? Like I'm not saying leave in all your blizzard brawls, but it's like, okay, maybe I should cut a couple of my blizzard brawls and then cut this Ren in seven because these people are actually starting to adapt to Ren. And now they're all playing Fading Hope, right? And this is like another individual card to card lineup. It's like, all right, Fading Hope insanely strong against the green deck on every axis on every card except for chariot it is insanely good can, can and I part of the you and a question yeah, about that though sure How do you guys avoid falling in the trap of shaving while doing this shaving do you mean like shaving yeah so like too much or no no this this is great i actually think this is a really important part of this conversation because we're, yeah. we're talking about having individual plans for our cards right yeah but so often people go into events and they're like, okay, my, my, my sideboard plan, my, the matchups that I want these cards in are these, but they don't know what to take out and they'll just shave like, this isn't that good, this isn't that good. So how do you how do you avoid falling into the trap of like doing a lot of shaving and actually force yourself to have a plan? Well, I, so I, I, I think personally, I don't know how Abe feels about this. I, I I don't love the word using shaving like that. I think mindlessly shaving is something I would say I don't really like, right? Where you're like not really thinking about it. So I do think there are times where you want to trim cards. Like the Blizzard Brawl is a great example where my current plan is to have one or two Blizzard Brawls, depending on if they're Leer or Dragons, uh, left in post board. Or sorry, predominantly Leer, predominantly Dragons I see in game one. So with that information, like I am, I'm literally shaving on Blizzard Brawls. Um, but when it comes to mindlessly shaving, the answer is at first... I kind of just do. I kind of just look at my cards and I go like, uh, I don't know. Like, it seems like Ren 7 is really strong. And my deck, like, one of the strengths is it gets to play Ren 7. My opponent is really good against Ren 7s. I'm going to try trimming these. And when you draw your Ren 7s and they're really, really bad, you start thinking about all the context where they could be, be being drawn and played. And it's like, wow, I really can't be affording to play a 5-mana threat that doesn't instantly attack or have this huge overwhelming presence. It's so funny because I think that this applies to so much more than just the threats that we play or the spells that we play. I want to give mm-hmm. I want to give Abe some time on the, this thought uh, as well. But like uh, this happened to me a lot this week in playing that Gruul deck that I was talking about, where I was focusing on my mana because like mm-hmm. understanding like when sequencing your lands when you're playing as few lands as that deck plays. Like okay, like I cut root brand root bound crack today, uh, because like just straight up I just didn't think that it was i i needed every time i drew it in my opener it was like a dead card like i had to mulligan it and i i think that too often people just see those dead cards as like oh you know i got a little unlucky it's like well could 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 it be something else like is is there is there another plan that you could have that lets you sequence the way that your deck 
wants to, or is there another, uh, it, like, you know, I, I need X number of mana dorks in this matchup is like a really good example of this, especially when you look at something like that mono green deck, right? Like people too often are like, okay, mana dorks are bad. I'm going to cut uh, all of my, all of, all of my mana dorks or all of my mana, my ramp in a certain matchup. And it's like, well, okay, now your deck just doesn't function because now you don't actually have a two into four. And now all of your four drops are just straight up four drops and you're just behind on curve all the time. And so sometimes it is correct to trim or shave, as you said, that, that was the point I wanted to get to. Patrick, Abe, what do you think about that stuff that Spencer asked? Yeah, I think, I think the first person I ever really heard say, it was something I kind of always internally knew what, like it was a big level up of mine was to like understand my approach to a matchup and when I'm building my deck and building my sideboard plans, like, what is it that my deck is trying to accomplish? But I think it was uh, actually um, Carmen Handy who first like wrote it in an article or said it on cover or something, which was just, I can tell when someone isn't prepared for a matchup when I'm watching them go through sideboard and they're like, ah, one of these, two of these, like, I don't really know. Just take out some of these bad cards because if you don't come in with a knowledge of what it is exactly you want to be doing, right? Like, it's a lot harder, I think, for mono green than for blue red. For me, I just sit there and I go, okay, I'm going to win the game before the time that Allrun's Epiphany would take over. Allrun's Epiphany and Galvanic Iteration, those are cards that are going way too far over the top of Mason's deck. He's mono green. He's trying to end the game probably around turn six or seven, despite all my interaction. He's really trying to have the last thing standing before I can take over with Lear. So we got to make sure that doesn't happen. Right, so then I know what cards take out. But for Mason, you know, you have to ask the question, well... You know, how many fight spells do I need to draw in a game now that I know they have, you know, they have like eight creatures that really, really matter that can take over the game on their own. It's kind of a balancing act of, of the numbers, and that's like a whole uh, a whole other thing about like math heuristics. But um, just knowing your plan is really how you avoid shaving, right? If, if you determine that you only want to have, you know, because you think that you need to draw one fight spell by turn five, like X percent of the time, and you know what that number is for these matchups, you can just do the math on that and then have that number of fight spells in your deck. And you know, and because you thought about it and you put it into your, into your deck building. And so that, that's really where, where I think that avoidance comes from, mostly for me. Yep, I agree. And I think the similar thing for like sideboard cards as well, where it's like, okay, like, I know what cards I'm trimming, and I'll kind of want to bring in, but like, what do I want to be putting there in the first place? And I think this is kind of a thing that happens a lot, where just look at decks and deck lists that come out when I set first drop. Like, hey, fun fact, for two weeks for Crimson Vow, two weeks, everybody, two weeks. In two weeks, we're going to be seeing a bunch of new deck lists. And there are going to be a lot of sideboards that are either the same from right now, or have a bunch of four ofs and a bunch of three ofs. And I do this as well, because it's like, I don't know what I want, but I think I want Malevolent Hermit in this matchup, so I'm going to put a bunch of them in my deck so I can draw them because I've been playing Ladder, and I need to figure out if I can hit them. Or, like, because all our plans are unrefined, I just really want to have as many, you know, essentially Stony Silence-type cards right as possible. Like, I really want to take over the game in some sort of, uh, like, hammery way. And then you look at a format near the end of its lifespan, like we do now, and we see a lot of ones and twos, and we kind of have these crafted plans and things are more figured out. And you do need to have that for your deck to kind of be good. Just having a bunch of hammers is a sideboard plan that can technically work, but you're really kind of hoping your main deck overpowers it. We see this happen in, with modern rhinos, where the sideboard is just three of, or three, uh, five hate cards, three of each, and they kind of just like run it. 
but that's not really how normal decks work. <laughs> it's actually really funny listening to this conversation in like both hindsight and in, in in practice because I think that different decks and different things that you're trying to do in a format can dictate this a lot. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna go back to the to an example, a really old example of the first time I qualified for the Pro Tour. Um, one of the common things that was said locally about my my brew basically um was like spencer doesn't know what he's doing he has too many two ofs in his deck and then one of his two ofs he has a split with a one of and like it's like actually the reason for that is because for this rptq i put in hundreds of hours of testing and i knew exactly what i wanted whereas you know the fact that you like only like lists with all four ofs mean that you like really linear game plans and it, it's that's okay to like linear game plans, but it's about understanding like what you're trying to do with your individual archetype and deck. So you just gave an example of like, like like a transformational sideboard is a perfect example of this. Listen, this this main deck is so good that like it's gonna win all of these game ones, and in some percentage of the time, it's actually just better for me to be a different deck than to like try and figure out what my sideboard is going to be, and. You, you can't get to that point without asking what problems you're trying to solve and without asking the, you know what, what solutions are available to you. And the point of applied testing is, exact, is to get to the point where you get to have those more nuanced conversations is probably the right way to put it, right? Like, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we talk about at the beginning of the format, like, you know, you have a bunch of three ofs and four ofs in your sideboard or like, you know, you've got some disenchant and stuff, but at the same time, like, there are some decks that that's what you can do. Like, those, that's that's your option. Um, I don't know. That's It's a really interesting part of Magic. Yeah, and I think kind of the, the next part about this that kind of ties into this is you also need to start thinking about how they're going to be sideboarding for you, and we talk about this a lot, where, uh, believe it or not, when you play on Arena, the other account you're playing against is a person who also has thoughts and things they net decked and uh they you know they they have plans right and so you need to start thinking about like how are they going to be sideboarding and i think that you know this kind of comes up with the the lear blue red deck a good bit where you know once Abe and once people play against the green deck enough if the green deck adapts and plays the frog key method bunch then like okay I need to be aware of this card and like, do I need to start adapting for this card? Do I need to have things for this? And it really depends on if the answer is yes or no. Sometimes, you know, the adaptation is just like slightly better for them and it's just not worth it for you to put points in that sort of matchup. But in a standard like this, where the the metagame is so condensed and so tight, it typically will be sort of good. Uh, It's kind of, you know, why part of the reason why you do see the bullets or whatever on modern sideboards and so many ones and two ofs is because they cover a wide range of matchups together and they kind of come together to sharpen enough matchups. But for something like standard, you know, you got to start thinking like, okay, do I need more demon bolts? Do I need to be like living in disdainful strokes? Do I need to be bringing in disdainful stroke? Like what do I need to be doing in order to just kind of stop this card from happening? Or even think of it on another level, because we're talking so much about card interactions, but also the play pattern. The one other thing is not only how the cards play out, like how they how they actually smash up against each other, but how you play them out. So an example, of this might be the adaptation to the frog moth. Isn't I actually sideboard differently? It involves me saving the fading hope more often, so that way I can actually waste your five mana, and then I can you know force you to do this sort of thing, and then tap with Lear and kind of say go. 
and not you know committing so much and maybe taking a little bit more hits than you would like to if the frog wasn't part of the equation since the frog does remove the cards from the graveyard and i think that sort of level up that interaction that sort of thought process and talking doesn't actually get covered enough about how actually the way you play your cards and holding your cards and not always using all your mana uh doesn't get brought up enough because so often the old verbiage of if you use all your mana you win more games is very true and there's a reason it gets preached so much but there does come a point where it's like hey you need to hold your cards and you need to wait for the moments and the opportunity to do these sort of things Abe, do you want to talk about that with uh our good friend expressive iteration and how important that's been that's kind of like a, a Oh that has definitely yeah. been a huge recurring thing for us is that um and, and it kind of the way that i think i've best described it um when we when we've talked about it is that expressive iteration is like the closest card that people still play with in formats that are relevant to brainstorm you know like that is a card that is so it, it has so much texture the way it plays because it's so strong you draw two cards off of it and it gets better the longer the game goes on. The more you know about the card you want in your hand, it can help you hit your land drops early. It's really very dependent on how you want to play it, but you have to think about when it is you want to cast that iteration. A lot of people like like just want to cast it on turn three immediately. Sometimes it's right to do that. Sometimes it's not. Um, but having a sense of when you need to cast it and how long you can wait to cast it uh, is is really important to a card like that. And that's something you can learn a lot through doing applied testing is like you understand when you understand a problem you're like oh well maybe you know something i've stopped doing in, in our games of uh of monogreen is letting ranger class resolve um like when i've been divided by zero and like a fading hope or whatever and mason plays one on turn three i've stopped just being like i guess i have to like let it resolve and then try to fading hope and i know he's gonna snake skin veil like these are things you learn about how to play with the with the cards through this kind of thinking of I'm going to focus on this matchup and what the play patterns are of this matchup and like um you know or or is it more important for me to hit my land drops early or do I need more uh more spells late with express, expressive iteration is a great example I think it was uh the blue white and blue red matchup in modern actually that was most emblematic of this was like Ragavan you have to play with it completely differently than every other matchup in the Blade matchup because it's so hard to deal with a creature with dash. If you can just dash Ragavan every turn as Murktide, that's a really powerful position for you to be in. And similarly, if you can hold on to Expressive Iteration until you know you need to cast it, that's your that's your best angle. You know, you, you just you know that you're going to need to start fighting over something sooner. You need to find that next piece against them. And so playing that card differently than you would maybe in a mirror match or in a more mid-ranging matchup. There's just a lot of things like that, small things that you can find through focus testing, through seeding these cards in your hand, and and really accelerate the process which you learn these versus just playing the matchups when you get paired into them in leagues or on ladder, or you know just playing against people who you play against your LGS for fun. You can really make the most out of that time by being very focused and learn really subtle things through thinking about what's going on in those games. When talking about this, Spencer, I bet this came up a lot with the, the RBT deck you're talking about. The first one, we have your, your two of splits and your one of one of and your, one of your two of splits, which is just too much math for me. But uh, how often, Spencer, were you thinking about like letting things go because you're you a it's not really a threat to your deck, and b you have like better removal lined up for that, and this removal is for a different problem. Yeah, this this, this that's a really good question. 
um, you know, if you if you think about kind of like how those moments are constructed, I actually think a better uh, example of this because of that format is actually the threats versus the removal. But I, I think it still applies where uh, I needed another dragon, uh, another flying threat, but I also needed another removal spell. And we actually ended up on, uh, I think it's Ice Thing Regent. Mm, uh, yeah. As in, uh, as the fifth quote-unquote Stormbreath Dragon. And, you know, you're like, well, how do you end up here? Like, what what is important? It's actually like, listen, I could have played like a Planeswalker in this slot that kills something. But then the, the, the whole game changes around a Planeswalker rather than me staying aggressive through the air. And so understanding like, and I mean, to, to your point though, to the removal s- slots too, like I'm not going to Crater's Claw your, your one drop uh, unless you're playing, unless you're playing like a deck where I need to literally spend all of my mana every turn to get to the point where I can take over the game. Right. So, you know, the, the split on that deck, I think was two Crater's Claws, uh, three Lightning Strike, one Twin Bolt for the red removal. And it was specifically because our Turk Red was so popular that you, I needed... A, I think there were Magnus Sprays on the sideboard too, but like you, you have to understand, hey, our Turk Red is trying to do be active on these turns. Uh, if I mean, all of my removal is basically two-mana removal unless I already have a 4-4 in play in my main deck. So what, what does that mean that the gameplay needs to play out? And how does the rest of my my deck need to perform? Because what I didn't want to do is play Magma Spray in the main deck because it didn't contribute to my main game plan. That's actually how I ended up on Twin Bolt. Is, okay, well how do I lose games to a Targa Red? Well, I lose games to a bunch of tokens that are one toughness as they Atarkas command me. And if I can actually kill two of them, uh, it, it act, I, I actually can win. Like, I actually can live long enough. And that's how you end up with, like, those weird, what looks like a weird decision, uh, but, you know, in hindsight, it works out for uh, the, the, the the good. I actually beat a Tarka Red, by the way, with Twin Bolt to qualify for the Pro Tour. You'll love to see it. Yeah, I think that thing, it, it comes up a lot where once you've kind of done this applied testing and you're trying to look through the cards and think about how you're playing the cards and how they mash up, it's such an important part of the process, and it comes up all the time. We can give you a bunch of examples. I've played a lot of games versus Merfolk where I've just let a silver guy up hit me like eight times, and it's like, whatever, I'm going to win as long as they don't get island walks. This bolt's not going off until we see an island walker. I know they're holding it. And sort of that sort of thing where it's like, okay, I know how these cards are going to play out. I know how these cards line up. I know how they mash up. And because I have this big macro sense of how the games play out, and I know kind of like what the winning image sort of looks like. And I've done this testing. I've talked to the people that play Merfolk. You know, I talked to the homie after the local round. Or I've talked to my friends. Or I've read this article. Or I watched the Nikachu video. And I did all these things. And I learned all this stuff. I now have this huge percentage uh, point gain when we get to um, the matchup itself. And now, because I've spent my time more efficiently than just playing leagues or I had Twitch on... Or da 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 da, da, you know, like I'm actually getting so much more out of my time and being more efficient, even if we're spending less time actually playing uh, magic because I'm trying to use my time more effectively. You know, I'm not trying to just jam infinity hours of magic, I'm trying to jam 
three or four hours of focused, actually thinking about stuff throughout the course of the day. Not even in one burst. Quite often, Abe and I have like done an hour or two and then done an hour or two later on, which also gives you some time to think about stuff. But yeah, I, I think that apply testing is super important. And even if you don't have someone to jam against and you can't do all these sort of things, and we talked about this so much in the past, just taking the time to uh, look through and think about these sort of things instead of just playing games, uh, it's probably less fun for a lot of people to just like sit there and think about how cards line up and try and solve it, the puzzle in their head. But it will get you a lot further than playing your 90th game versus your 91st game of you know Mayhem, Devil, Sacrifice, and Historic. I, I You're actually, probably not going to get a lot of gains there. I actually think that this is why... Uh, for for long time listeners, like this is why Michael and I work so well together in a lot of ways, is like he was definitely the I'm in a giant my ninetieth game, and I was like, can we just like take a step back and talk about <laughs> what's happening type of person, and like I I I think that understanding what's fun for you, and then understanding like uh, what it's funny that you say that because like for me this is the fun part of Magic, like this this right here. I'm sure that people realize this listening to this episode, but, like, this is the part of magic that I enjoy. But I, I do not enjoy, like, the 90, the, like, my 90th game of any deck. It doesn't matter if it's, it doesn't matter if it's a primeval titan deck. Like, it just, I don't actually enjoy it that much. I enjoy the question that I'm trying to answer. And I think that also surrounding yourself with people um, that are on the other side and helping them, too, really elevates this I, and i don't know if that is the the, the situation that you and Abe have right now it kind of sounds like it is where you guys are really feeding off of each other where somebody has has a matchup they want to test the other has a question that they want to answer but i, I do think that if you're going to do apply testing uh it, it is actually really helpful to have a person i know that kind of goes against what you just said but i actually do think that that it the the bounds and the gains are, are pretty big when you do yeah, I just don't want, uh, I'm going to call people out here. A lot of people will be like, oh, but I don't have any friends that do that. And it's like, all right, well, I'm sorry. That sucks. We can work on that in time. But don't let that be an excuse to, like, not do these things. That That's what I was trying to get at there. Was, you know, less so that I, I do think having friends and people doing it, I, the, the, the secret to magic that no one will ever tell you is that the best way to get good at magic is to talk to other people that are good at magic. Yeah. Shh, don't tell anyone. No one mentions it. But it's like the, the way to do it. Every good player was like, yeah, I was pretty good. And then I started talking to people like Sam Party, and now I'm great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think, I think it's like a Finkel quote of like magic online makes you good, but like it's playing events where you play against the best players and talk to the best players or even just talking to other people is what makes you great. And I think that applied testing is, is one of the reasons for that is that it's such a good vessel to flex your brain, get those ideas out there, work on those ideas with people you know, have those conversations and really work on things in a you in a forward way. You just actually gave the best example of applied testing, and you might have done it on accident, Abe. But at one point, uh, people were uh, doing applied testing uh, where they were proxing cards and decks for a pro tour. This is like a really popular story, but it's really old. So people like Mason's Age of Magic don't know this. But uh, John Finkel is an invitational card. It's called Shadow Mage Infiltrator. And one of the things that was really easy for them to do was just write Shadow Mage on Psychotogs. And, like, you play them as Shadow Mage Infiltrators in their Pro Tour testing. Well, eventually, in this Pro Tour testing, somebody was like, if this Shadow Mage Infiltrator was just the Psychotog, I would have won this game. And it happened so many times that, like, wait a second. Can we just play these as Psychotogs again? Uh, and that's, that's, like, the perfect example of, like, 
getting in a room with great people, jamming things out. Um, and, and you know what? It, it's so funny that we talk about like, you know, great people or, or smart people. The truth is, is like, if you are competing in Magic the Gathering with a bunch of people that are like popping PTQs or like stuff like that, I promise you they're probably already in the 1% of Magic. And you can just work with the people that are around you and improve together. That's what we did. We got silver pros uh, all through, all through just the. Mo I mean, I mean Utah guys. Like we had no reason to have that many people qualify for pro tours in our region, and it, it's it's through doing stuff like this. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to support the show, you can always go to patreon.com slash ccmtg to support the show. If you want to find us, you can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. And every week on Card Kingdom, writing about standard or historic. So if someone wants to find you, where can they go? Yeah, you can find me uh, talking about magic or kind of nerd stuff in general at Spencer13H. I do another podcast called Need to Nerd with uh, former magic teammate Wes Singleton. Uh, the, the podcast is about nerd culture. Uh, I think we're doing Pokemon Fire Red uh, review this week. We do lately like do the retro game reviews. Um, we've we've done a few of them. We're going to be talking about uh, Fire Red. Uh, we're going to have Mason. We're going to force Mason back on another guest episode uh, to talk about uh, his favorite movie of all time here in the next few months. Um, but yeah. Dune. Oh, <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought it was opposite deck. My oh, bad. I didn't realize. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, that, those are like the the main places you can find me. Also, um, in the He's a Game Media Discord, um, as well as I'm starting to post more in the Constructed Criticism Discord for patrons. Um, uh, I have an updated list for the Gruel deck that I, I I honestly like have not won this much with a deck for a long time, and you'll be able to find that stuff in that Discord specifically first. Yeah, you also find Abe's and I's modern and standard decks there. So for the Invitational, probably like Thursday. Hey, where can people find you? You can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings. Uh, and, you know, DMs still open for coaching. I'm still accepting people. Would love to, you know, work with people and help them, you know, work on upgrading their game and uh, and learning more about magic. If you want to do some applied testing with me, that's a thing I could totally facilitate. If you want to have conversations with a great player, maybe you talk need to find Mason's coaching. But uh, if you want to have conversations <laughs> with a good player, you can talk to me. <laughs> Oh shucks. No, I'm full eight. Uh anyways, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. We'll see you all back next week where I'm an invitational champion. Talk to y'all then. You know, it's funny to think about kind of those moments where somebody was just right on this podcast, and it's often not me and Mason. You see, you know, whether it's Hogak or whether it's Lear, usually if you want the best advice in a pick-to-set review, you just ignore what Mason and I say and go with the card that we are a little more down on. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, in this, this post-show credit scene, I would like to name Abe the Burger King crown champion of the pick-to-set review. I'm the Whopper, baby! <laughs> the Whopper. Oh man! Any uh, oh oh he ru he ruined the screen. He's like disconnecting. I love it. Thank you, Abe, for all your contributions. A Burger King crown 
and a large onion ring are coming your way, my friend. Love to hear it.